0: But the answer to that violence in society is not more violence. Every single wisdom tradition I've ever been exposed to teaches that. Mm -hmm. And people will cite the Old Testaments an eye for an eye, but that's not the full story.
1: Right. And the reality with the people that we serve is 95% of them get out, even after murder or whatever crime. So. Today's inmate is tomorrow's neighbor. What kind of neighbor do you want coming home to you? Right. And punishment, punishment alone doesn't work.
2: Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. Welcome again to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt. As I look at my seven week old daughter, Camille, I can't help but wonder what will be the defining moments of her life. She's fortunate, as was I, to grow up in a position of privilege, one where she'll be given many opportunities that others do not get. But like all of us, she will have her moments, her moments of struggle, her moments of failure, her moments of shame. And I wonder as her father, what will those moments be? And I'm even more curious to know, How will those moments shape her in her life? In my life, moments like these have always presented themselves as opportunities for me to learn and grow and evolve. But I've been lucky. I've always had support. And more importantly, I've always been given another chance to get things right. And when you're given that chance and you have that support, these moments can be such a gift and they can define who we are. Sometimes they even become a sacred wound something that goes from being a source of great pain to great power. But not all are so lucky. So many were born into a setting where they weren't given a second chance. They weren't even given a first. And they just must do what they do to survive, which can lead down dangerous paths. What happens if they are finally given a chance? A chance to tap into those survival skills, those sacred wounds. What might be possible then? Catherine Hoke is the founder of Defy Ventures, a program that helps incarcerated individuals transform their hustle, their survival skills, their sacred wounds into entrepreneurial ventures and get a chance that they never had. Kat has had her own moments that she shares in this discussion of great pain, shame, and injustice, all of which she uses now to power her on her mission, to give people a chance to get things right. And as I listen to Kat's story, I can't help again, but to think of Camille. And my wish for her is not to have a life devoid of challenging and hard moments, but to have one where she has all she needs to grow from them. In this conversation, Kat is joined by Brad Feld and Jerry in a moving, open, vulnerable discussion about shame, privilege, failure, and second chances. Enjoy. Enjoy.
3: My name is Matt Hoffman. I am the VP of People at DigitalOcean. We are in the cloud infrastructure hosting space. And uh, the Reboot Circle that I was a part of was the one for peers like myself who lead people operations, people and culture, HR functions at similar startup early stage companies any leader in an organization you know we need coaching and support too just like any other human being and to be able to have that safe space where there's a trusting environment you can be open with your issues in a non-judgmental way where you have the support of people working through it that's a rare thing that's things that we just no leader is going to get that in their organization directly and there's real power in having that with the coaching framework with the peers it's a really it's been for me at least a
0: really powerful combination We are currently forming six new circles for roles, including CEO, Head of People, VP of E, and more. Find your group at reboot.io slash circles. Today's quote comes from one of my favorite songs by Gregory Alan Isakoff called Second Chances. I'm running from nothing, no thoughts in my mind. Oh, my heart was all black, but I saw something shine. I thought that part was yours, but it might just be mine. I could share it with you if you gave me the time. I'm all bloody knuckles, longing for home. If it weren't for second chances, we'd all be alone. Kat, Brad, it's just great to see you both here today. And, you know, before we get started, I just if we can just take a moment and each of you introduce yourselves. Catherine, who are you?
1: Catherine Hoke, or Cat, founder and CEO of Defy Ventures, Mm -hmm. a nonprofit organization that transforms the hustle of men and women with criminal histories. So I'm a social entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I have no financial upside, but other than that, I'm like a regular entrepreneur.
0: And Brad?
3: Uh, Brad Feld. I'm a partner at Foundry Group, I'm co founder of Techstars. Uh, invest in early stage companies, I've written a bunch of books, and I recently joined the board of Defy Ventures at CAT and the board's invitation.
0: Oh, fantastic. And you know, Big win. Big win. Big win. And so I'm really excited about having you on the show. I mean, it's a little bit different uh, to have sort of two folks here, and, and I know that uh, Defy is probably going to be something that's new to many of the folks who are listening, so thought it'd be good to sort of tell us a little bit more about what Defy is and more important your story your journey and cat and why it's important to you so so you said D- give me the mission line again that that 10 second line that you use
1: we transform the hustle of men and women with criminal histories we right. work with people inside prison and outside prison You can think of us as an incubator Mm. of businesses and of raw talent. We come alongside people who have failed Mm. big time, publicly, Mm. who often think that they are failures and cannot get back on their feet. Mm. Because society writes these people off sometimes Mm. for a mistake that they made 30 years ago. They see them as nothing more than just a label.
3: Right.
1: And uh, we come alongside them shine them up, and help put them back in the fight. And we use entrepreneurship as a tool that brings people together uh, to celebrate success and people like Brad and you Mm -hmm. and many other entrepreneurs and VCs. um, But entrepreneurship is the carrot that we dangle that gets people excited. But the more important work of Defy Ventures is holistic life transformation and making people feel human for the first time in a long time making them see that they have worth and potential and that they can do it and bringing healing in the lives of
0: people who have gone through a lot so you know i'll i'll own up to the fact that we met Cat what two years ago i think um uh, and you brought some of uh, the folks who've come through your program into my office and we did it we did a talk there and I will tell you that their faces are still etched in my brain. Um, they're still etched in my heart. Um, uh, there's a, 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 just a guy, a uh, uh, Latino man. I don't, I don't even remember his name. Elioi? I, Elioi. I just remember his tears. Yeah. And I remember uh, the, the sensation that he had when I spoke to him not as a former inmate, but as an entrepreneur. And you could almost see, you could viscerally feel this experience of uh, being responded to as another human being. Did Did I get that right?
1: Yeah. They're so used to being thrown away by people and looked down upon that then when people like you come and say, I get it. I've made mistakes, too. And look at them as a human being. It's the most empowering, life-giving experience. It transforms.
0: Right. Right. So I think it would be helpful if the group, you know, if if the audience really understood a little bit about your story and how you came to do Defy. um, Because I'm going to name what they can see. Um, You present as a typical, capable, privileged white woman. (laughs) So what the hell are you doing hanging out with these folks?
1: Yeah. Um, I never in a million years thought I would end up doing this work. When I was 12 years old, a really good friend of mine was brutally murdered by two 16-year-old boys. And they were sentenced to five and ten years each. They were sentenced as juveniles. And today, I'm thankful that they were sentenced as kids. But when I was 12, I thought they should get the death penalty. I was so without any mercy or grace. Mm. And um, lock them up and throw away the keys. So the fact that I do this work now is somewhat surpri- was surprising to me. Mm. Um, when I was 26... I was invited on a prison visit. At the time, I was working in private equity. And when I got invited on a prison visit, it was in Texas. I was living in New York City. I had to fly to a prison, never cared to go to Texas, never cared to go to prison. My first thought was, no thanks. But the person who invited me started to tell me that so many people, not, not everybody in prison, but so many want nothing more than a second chance, or today, I've learned to see that it's really a, about a legitimate first chance.
0: I was just going to say it's probably more a first chance
1: for, for many. Know, if you saw yeah. how they grew up, the first person I ended up saying yes,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, reluctantly mm-hmm. and not with the purest of motives. I, was, I would say I went just out of curiosity, and I actually thought I was going on like this wild zoo tour to see caged animals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But she spoke about it.
0: How kind of you!
1: I know. I'm exactly being sarcastic. Right. I know. Um, But I think because my heart was so hardened Mm -hmm. and I had such an ugly perspective of people in prison, that's what smacked me in the face on my first prison visit. And I cried my way through the three days in Texas, not because I felt sorry for the people I met, I felt sorry for myself, how as someone who loves grace and is grateful for many second chances that I've had in my life, how I could be so hardened And how my experience of one Mm -hmm. could lead me to write off Mm -hmm. millions of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so on that first visit, the first person I met, his name was Johnny. And when Johnny was eight years old, he saw his grandfather murder his father in front of him. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Johnny's story is not very unique. Most of our guys lost their innocence when they were 10 years old or six. And... Not shockingly, Johnny was jumped into a gang and started selling drugs. And by the age of 18, yeah, he was locked up. Mm -hmm. And I asked myself, you know, the question, if I had been raised in these circumstances, how would I not end up in this, on this path too? Mm -hmm. So that led me to have serious empathy for this population. And then... To this day i'm fascinated by the entrepreneurial stories of the people that i work with mm-hmm. i realized on that visit for the first time that many people who are incarcerated are natural born hustlers mm-hmm. they are actually incredible entrepreneurs again not all of them but i learned for the first time as a white privileged girl that uh, many gangs and drug rings are run by boards of directors and they have management teams and they have bookkeepers and accountants and they're for-profit organizations and they understand first mover advantages and everything every business principle they weren't great at risk management because they all got busted and ended up behind bars but i asked what would happen if they transformed their hustle Mm -hmm. and that led me to jump ship from my fancy new york job give up my everything all of my finances cash out my 401k to go all in Move to Texas and start my first organization out there
0: okay so so far so good <laughs> right because that's not the whole story yeah right because up until that point it feels like Mother Teresa
1: <laughs> I'm not
0: because <laughs> <laughs> none of us are yeah. not even Mother Teresa So what's the other half of the story because I because to me, Knowing a bit about this, and this is a familiar term to the folks who listen to this podcast. The experience of your friend's murder was one of your superpowers. But there's another superpower here, isn't there? And that is what happened. So what's the rest of the story?
1: So my own failure, I guess, is my own superpower. Um, I led that organization called Prison Entrepreneurship Program in Texas for five years. And we achieved incredible success and statistics Mm -hmm. that wowed everybody. And then I screwed up everything. Um, I had been married for nine years. I was divorced at the age of 31, five years into leading this organization. My divorce came unexpectedly to me. Mm -hmm. And then in the wake of my divorce, I made decisions that I regret to this day. I ended up having some relationships with people who had been released from prison. Mm -hmm. So they were graduates of my own program. It was not illegal, but I knew better. I knew that the Texas prison system would not appreciate my choices. And I went through an extremely public shaming, deeply humiliating resignation process. They forced my resignation after I was honest about my choices. And uh, my news went out in the news nationally and then globally. And when I saw what people were writing about me on the Internet, I used to ask people, what would it be like if you were only known for the worst thing you've done? And that became my story. And I was so ashamed that I wanted to just wear dark sunglasses and a hat and hide. And uh, it was so bad. I. I tried to kill myself. I saw no vision for myself beyond what I had done. I saw it as like, I I, I feel like this work is totally my calling. I know it's my calling. I screwed up my calling my life purpose. I lost everything. I've never had a plan B. Um, I, the organization that I started in Texas was my everything and I lost my everything. I lost my identity as a wife, as a leader. And I let so many people down. And I went through the deepest depression of my life. That was seven years ago. I couldn't see a future.
0: I knew certain parts of that story. I didn't know the fullness of that story. And you know, when we first met and you told me some of this, I it always struck me as illustrative of this deep well of strength that that is evident when you come into a room. And that's what I mean when I talk about superpower here. It's understanding something. And so this is a bit of a projection on my part. Reject it if it's not true. But I imagine when you go quiet and you remember that feeling there's an experience that you have when you're facing the next Johnny that's in front of you yeah. and you're nodding. Does that
1: yeah. resonate? Now, I believe that I'm a lot better at doing my work the second time around because I used to always preach grace, and but I didn't apply it to myself. I didn't understand it. And now that... I have been given a real second chance. I was loved back to life. I haven't been incarcerated myself. But now that I've had such a personal experience with shame and self-hatred and all that, I can just relate to their stories and they feel like I can relate. They, they say I'm one of them. Yeah. And so um, I, the compassion and empathy that I have and that I bring not only to the people that we serve, but also to my team. Um, I am more human to a lot of other people because of this. And even when I speak to audiences of entrepreneurs, I think everyone can relate to a story of failure and feeling not good enough and letting everyone down. And... I Because mine was in the news, I actually have the freedom of talking about it, whereas a lot of people just have to keep their secrets. They feel like they have to keep them suppressed because if they came out, I mean, what leader hasn't done something at some point that if it came out, it might force your resignation or cause great shame. And so a lot of people live in that secrecy, which causes more shame. Today, I have actual freedom and joy, even though I still have deep pain about my past.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But that's something that, that's a gift that I have.
0: That's right. That's a gift that you have that you give to others because you connect with that human experience. Yeah. And, you know, there's a thought that comes in, which is better humans make better entrepreneurs, right? And being more human is the path. Being more real, being connected to the reality of your own experience. I mean, it makes us better entrepreneurs, and it makes us better leaders.
1: Mm-hmm. That that, after my uh, resignation, one of the media stories that came out about me was I titled, I think, Human, All Too Human. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we should turn that into a tattoo. So,
1: Not a bad uh, idea for my next one. That's right.
0: <laughs> so... One last piece, and then I'd like to expand the conversation and really invite Brad in and talk a little bit about the recent experience. So one of my favorite, many people know I'm a Buddhist, and I often think about Buddhism, and my favorite Buddhist um, bodhisattva, saint, is a guy named Milarepa. And Milarepa watched his family get murdered when he was a boy. And he himself became such a notorious murderer that he would wear the finger bones of his victims in a necklace around his neck. He was transformed when he met Marpa. And Marpa used to kick his ass. And he became one of the great saints of Buddhism. And he's written enormous poetry and uh, uh, songs. The songs of Milarepa are incredibly powerful. But he's the key character in one of my favorite stories about facing our own demons and putting our head up to the mouth of the demon, the worst possible thing. In this case, it might be shame and humiliation and saying, eat me if you wish and transforming that experience. And so miller Repa came into my mind when you were telling your story and the story of some of the folks that you work with. Yeah, I, I think one of my
1: favorite reasons for working with our men and women is they're so hungry and coachable. And partly because of their shame, That leads to real humility, Mm -hmm. and they don't even know their incredible talents. They don't recognize it because they've been so thrown away. Mm -hmm. But then the resulting hunger from that Mm -hmm. leads to the most beautiful things, Mm -hmm. and that comes from the deep pain.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's also a common element. I mean, you know, Brad, you know, you and I did this event yesterday. We had a, a local support group. and. We, you know, a couple of the folks there spoke to the fact that a number of the parents, fathers in particular, were alcoholics. And here's a truism that my partner Collard often speaks to, which is that entrepreneurs, and now it sounds like, folks who are in the prison system, share a particular common trait, which we refer to as premature promotion. They are thrust into being an adult. Long before they are prepared to be that, oftentimes they're thrust into positions of having to take care of, and that can be a power that does destructive things, but it can also be a power that creates powerful, constructive things in people's lives and it turns them into early leaders. Does this resonate with you in your experience, Catherine?
1: Yeah, I mean, our, our guys were pretty much all raised in poverty and violence, which created, it forced them into scrappiness and hustling as children. They did not have childhoods. They were selling things.
0: Just Illegal to
1: things. Yeah, to survive and find a way. Right. So that, that's why they're natural entrepreneurs, um, right. because they were not spoon-fed.
2: That's
1: right. They had to find a way way too early in life, but that can, when refined— to go legal, it can also produce
0: such right. amazing outcomes. Right, right. So let's let's expand the circle a little bit. And Brad, thank you for for giving Cat the the space because I think that that story is a really important story. And and I know that uh, you had a recent experience and you, and and you spoke about it. What was the experience? What happened?
3: The the specific experience that uh, was incredibly powerful for me was spending a day uh, in prison with Defy, uh, with about 50 EITs, entrepreneurs in training, and about 75 volunteers that came on a trip that was sponsored by me and uh, Mark Suster from Upfront. Um, But it's actually linked to a couple of things that happened in about a three-month period um, so my first introduction to CAT and Defy was through Techstars. Um, uh, last year, Techstars started a foundation, and we gave uh, we give grants to other organizations, nonprofits, to help uh, increase diversity in entrepreneurship. And our first batch of five grants, one of them was to Defy. And as the, the board of the Techstars Foundation was making the grants and deciding what to do, each of us adopted... An organization, and there were two of us that signed up for Defy. Uh, me and and uh, Jeremy Scher, who's one of the other uh, board members of the foundation. Um, and I hadn't met Kat. I wasn't part of the decision process because uh, Ali, who uh, it was Ali Berman. Ali Berman ran the foundation in the first year of the foundation, so she did the whole process. And it just sort of captured my my imagination. Like I I had had two experiences with the prison system up to this, that point in my life, I have uh, uh, two friends who were both incarcerated. Um, Both were white collar uh, crimes. One was uh, uh, check hiding and the other was um, uh, tax evasion, but not the person who was incarcerated was not the tax evader. It was the owner of the company he was the president of. It was a very complicated kind of interactions. And I, you know, I, I'd been to Boulder Jail a handful of times. I'd been down to uh, Florence uh, and the prison in Florence, but the minimum security prison. So I'd never really been in that kind of environment, but I had some touch points to it. So it captured my attention. Uh, Maybe a month after we made the grant or two months after we made the grant, Kat Kat came out and spent some time out here and met with a bunch of people. And we sat down for about an hour.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. And um, it was awesome. Like, I heard her story. The pitch— was not a pitch. The pitch was a conversation about the importance of what she was doing and why she was doing it. It included the the sort of deep uh, intensity around her own story and then the creation of Defy Ventures five years ago, mm. six years ago, as, in Kat's words, her second chance. Right right so this view of so many things linked together for me right the spirit of the entrepreneur the intensity of this woman who i was now sitting across from for 15 or 20 minutes the emotional intensity of of her story not just of herself but of mm-hmm. the work she was called to and was doing mm-hmm. the link to diversity the link to entrepreneurship all of these things were sort of together and after about 30 minutes i think i i said something like hey hey cat stop like i'm in like <laughs> no, you got me. Uh you know, what, what what can I do? And and she said, you know, I, I the the best thing you could do, you know, to really get involved in this and to understand it is is to come to prison for a day. And I said, Done. And I my think my
1: jaw dropped. Yeah, you, know, you should sort of It was so easy. Yeah. Well,
3: do I have to tell you more? No, no, no. What, when? <laughs> um and so uh uh, we organized uh, a date for the graduation of of the EIT program or the Defy program with the EITs. It was a six month program. This was a graduation day in uh, Lancaster at the prison in Lancaster, in, just outside um, uh, Mojave Desert sort of area, uh, what is it, about an hour north of LA or something like yeah. that. And Mark Suster, who had gone to another event or a defy event already, this was his second. Um, he and I invited a bunch of, um, I would say, combination entrepreneurs and VCs. Mm-hmm. Pretty broad range in um, uh, San Francisco, L.A. mostly, but a few from elsewhere. And then some from Colorado. A group from Techstars came with me from here. And we went out and we we had a day that I would characterize as a top 10 peak life experience, wasn't best life experience, but peak in the context of the emotional intensity, what I learned from it, what it caused me to reflect on Mm -hmm. um, at many different levels, Mm -hmm. right? Versus just, you know, you sort of have this amazing experience, but it's one-dimensional amazing experience. This was a multi-dimensional amazing experience, and it was in a context that was in some ways, completely foreign, mm. because it was in the gymnasium in a maximum security prison. Right. Um, you know, and, and you, after a while, you forget. You feel like you're in the gymnasium in your high school. Right. And then you look up, and you see the cage up top with the guy with the gun. Right. Over you, watching. Right. And when you have food, you realize that you're eating in a totally separate area from the EITs. They're not able to eat your food. Mm-hmm. When you go to the bathroom, you realize that they're having to go to the bathroom somewhere else. Like, you have these sort of brief moments that remind you, but in this context of feeling completely like peers. Right. Or not feeling like peers, but being peers, being involved fully with a set of people who are not part of your normal experience in life.
0: Right.
3: And again... You take this context across many, many different dimensions of learning. And, and one that stands out for me, um, I think that was the one, you know, like you say, it smacks you in the face. Like, which was the one that smacked me in the face? There were 20 or 30 throughout the day. But I remember having to sit down after this one. There was like an area where there were some chairs, where there were some snacks. And I just went over and sat in that area for about five minutes and regrouped. Yeah. And, and the the discussion was the following, and it was midway through the day. We'd already done a, 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 a thing called Walk the Line, which I wrote about in my blog post, which forced me to really confront the notion of privilege and the idea that, you know, mm. I, I, it's very easy as, you know, a successful white uh, male who grew up in a middle-class family with loving parents and uh, went to – you know, a great college and like all of that stuff, like it's easy to talk about it. It's a whole nother thing to like immerse yourself in a context where it stands out and shines this giant light on you. Mm -hmm. And the walk the line exercise is part of that where you really start to grok it. But then I have this moment where I'm talking to, and I don't remember the EIT's name, but I remember his face as well. And you don't really walk up to someone and say, "So, so, so what are you in for? Yeah. Right? It's not that kind of a conversation, but you're having a conversation and I, I don't remember what triggered it, but he started to tell me his story. And his story was the following. When he was 10, his older sister was raped in front of him. And he decided at 10 that his job was to protect his older sister. When he was 17, his older sister was being regularly you know beaten up by her boyfriend. And he decided, that my job's to protect my older sister. And so even though the older sister would say, no, 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 he decided to go kick the shit out of the the boyfriend. So he did. And in the middle of it, the boyfriend had a gun. The boyfriend pulled the gun on on this kid. He knocks the gun out of the boyfriend's hand. Gun falls on the ground. They scramble for the gun, right? Lose gun, you're going to scramble for the gun. The gun goes off. It shoots the boyfriend in the leg, does not kill the boyfriend, just shoots him in the leg break up the fight, cops come. He ends up with a 60 year prison sentence. Jesus. 60 years. 60 year prison sentence. And the kid's 17 at the time. We finished our conversation. I sat down and what I thought about for five minutes was what would be the story. If in the absence of his upbringing at 17, I was the kid that got in the fight and wrestled for the other kid's gun which went off and shot the other kid in the leg. Mm. I'd be a fucking hero. Mm. I'd be the front page of the newspaper. You know, white kid saves older sister from bad boyfriend. Right? I mean, I just sat there with it and it, and that was that was my moment. Like mm. I went, "Yep. I don't I don't even have a beginning of an understanding of this." Mm-hmm. Mm. And and it's fucked up and it's not right mm. and you know that that person doesn't deserve this and not only does he not deserve this, independent of that, he deserves my respect. Mm. He's another person.
0: Mm.
3: He was in a situation circumstance, a set of experiences that resulted in him being incarcerated for probably most of his adult life. Mm. And,
0: and just just that dynamic. Well, let me tell you my reaction. So I have six brothers and sisters. Um, I'm number six of seven. My youngest uh, brother, my, my only young brother, is John. When uh, I was 12 and he was 10, we lived in an apartment on the second floor in Brooklyn in this house and I, and I was looking out the back window and I saw this boy on the other side of the backyard throwing rocks at my brother and my job was to defend my brother because I grew up with a lot of violence at home and what I internalized was they can hit me but they're not going to hit him and I raced downstairs And I grabbed that kid, and I pulled him over the fence, and I beat his face in. Right? And I often think of that story because there's a hulk inside of me. That's one of my superpowers. And so when you were telling that story, there's a hulk inside of that boy. Because he's still a boy. And the only difference between him and me was that there wasn't a gun, because I would have killed him. I would have killed him. And uh, what I come away with from that story, and we'll go there in a second, is not just the um, the fucked upness of our prison system, as so well discussed in that documentary Thirteenth, the Netflix documentary or the inherent racism, or the economic um, uh, discrimination that exists in our society. But the similarity, I mean, you know, Kat, from your story, Brad, from your story, from my reaction, you know, the similarity of all of our experiences, it's really only minor differences that then create these major difference in outcome. It's a difference of circumstance. It's a difference of timing. It's a difference of means and motive. But the emotional base of wanting to protect a sibling, you don't have to have gone to prison to be able to connect with that experience. The emotional base of feeling wiped out by humiliation, And having your self-loathing triggered by shame. You don't have to have gone to prison to remember that feeling.
3: So take that thought. Yeah. And now do that 20 more times Mm. on different dimensions Mm. over the course of 12 hours. Mm. And that's what the trip was.
1: Wow. While hearing a bunch of business
3: pitches, while hearing them, a bunch of business pitches, it was
1: a Shark Tank competition, right? Mm-hmm.
3: And 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 let me go to that, right? Mm-hmm. So it was it was nineteen more different vectors, right? They weren't different stories; they were totally different vectors right. of layers of oneself against the back. And I'll give you one to a, a positive one to hang on to. That's an mm-hmm. example against the backdrop of. Uh, a day of Shark Tank-like mm. pitch competitions, right? We started with 45 um, uh, EITs, 15 uh, that that went down to 15 mm. that gave pitches, you know, again, with their 75 volunteers, so we got 15 different places mm. where they're all pitching. That then goes to the semifinals, or the 15 goes to the Finals of five that then pitch to everybody Mm. and there's one winner. And this, you know, this is interleaved with a bunch of activities and Mm. interactions Mm. like the walk the line interaction Mm. that I talk about on my, on my blog post about privilege at the end. So again, 18 other things
2: Mm.
3: at the end, they graduate and they wear a cap and gown Mm. Um, First time in their lives, they matriculate. Mm -hmm. So they walk across the stage with the cheering, their name being called. They get a certificate from a a program at Baylor University. So they actually get a tangible certificate like you would. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys uh, says, uh, this is the first time I've been on a stage since I was in kindergarten.
2: Oh, my God.
3: And he, I don't know, he's in his 30s. So those kinds of moments where you think about the difference, and oh, by the way, the unambiguous and complete and total joy and pride on this man's face Mm. in that moment. I mean, complete the the most radiant joy you could see from anyone in a situation where within an hour he gets to go back into his Mm -hmm. six by eight cell. And I get to with my friends get in the SUV that drove us there and takes us to the airport and we get on our plane and fly home. Right. It's that kind of intensity. It doesn't leave, right? This was a Friday that we did this. Um, Lots of email over the weekend with, you know, again, 75 of my closest friends Mm. uh, uh, and and Mark's closest friends joined me. Lots of people I knew, but I had never met before. Like, that's kind of interesting. This is the first place you've ever physically spent time together was in this context. And almost everyone I interacted with, even even by Sunday, was still not even beginning to finish processing. Right. And not just at an emotional level, intellectual, what am I going to do with this? How do I want to relate to this? And you know, in our super busy lives, where everybody's, you know, doing whatever they want, and pick your entrepreneurial cliche, uh, which you do such a magnificent job of uh, of holding up and uh, and lighting on fire over and over again. <laughs> um, all of a sudden, to have like this dropped in the middle of that, it changes your perspective. Not in a like, oh my gosh, my life is meaningless. I must do something else. It's like, well, time out. That, you know, that deal that's not happening, that customer I didn't get, that, you know, the software release that's two weeks late. Like time out. <laughs> you know, like like change your view on what is actually meaningful in that. Yeah. And how you relate to it.
0: Yeah. Kat, a- anything to add to what what Brad said? What's your reaction?
1: I I hear their stories every day, but I did not know this story about the guy shooting the guy in the leg. But it's it's what I see every day, and I I want to cry, but I want to cry because my blood is boiling, and I a lot of what makes me good at my work is my rage, and I stay really close to the rage. Like I I intentionally engage. And things that make me mad every morning, I read a newsletter called the Marshall Project that talks about the injustices in our sector. It's called the criminal justice sector, but the injustice that plagues it is what keeps me angry. And a lot of people hear um, stories like this, or they'll watch Thirteenth, and they'll say, "Oh, that sucks. That's screwed up." You know, the and when I I I like to get mad so that I do things. Right. I have to do things. And um, that's what, yeah, it's it's my fuel. So I stay really close to it because then I am just, I'm so driven, I'm so impatient to create change every day.
0: Right. Brad and I just sort of gave each other a look. Remember the conversation yesterday we were having with this peer group about the value of anger. And, you know, one of the points I made, and I have often made this point, is thank the fucking Lord that Martin Luther King got angry.
1: (laughs) I'm a very angry person. (laughs) Right?
0: Thank the Lord that Rosa Parks was just fucking pissed off. Yeah. And, you know, there is a place for rage. There is a place for anger, right? When I was 12, that was an inappropriate expression of my rage. Mm. but my rage was appropriate, Mm. right? And change happens, I think, when we find the, the jet fuel of passion. Rage happens. The rage you're talking about happens when we give a fuck.
1: Well, and it's not only that this guy's in prison for 60 years, It's also the way that he's viewed by other humans as being subhuman. So I'm sure that his charge was probably attempted murder um, or something like that. But uh, so the men that I and women that we work with have made mistakes, Uh, but then the way that they are labeled and seen and the interesting blog posts about our work, people who never say it to my face, but who talk about my people as being disgusting and horrible and irredeemable, Mm -hmm. it hurts me and makes me more angry. And I just want the world to see what they're missing.
0: Well, you know, uh, over the summer, I did a a podcast conversation with an incredible woman named Conda Mason. And Conda runs um, uh, Impact Hub Oakland, And it was a powerful experience for me because ultimately what we ended up speaking about was the othering that occurs in our lives. And this is yet another population that we other, uh, with a capital O, and we make other than ourselves, more than likely to protect ourselves, yeah, right, from the possibility that, just as I said to Conda during the summer, I have my biases. I have my racism. It is part and parcel of who I am. And I have my rage. And my rage can express itself in inappropriate ways. And it can express itself in appropriate ways. And part of my learning to be an adult is learning how to be in touch with my own feelings.
1: I was just as guilty of this, you know, I talked about my friend who was killed and how my feelings that resulted from that. So I understand where that comes from. I think the lack of awareness in our country, 30% of 23-year-olds already have a criminal history, 30%.
0: Well, here's a statistic that I just saw, and again, I just watched, 13th. The United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of of its inmates.
1: Yeah. And once you go behind bars, you have a 76.6% chance of being arrested within five years. But the stat that makes me the saddest is that 70% of the children of people in prison follow in their parents' footsteps to prison. So it's a generational legacy that is handed down and that that is accepted. And that's the other part of my why is that I believe that one of the biggest problems in our country is a lack of positive male role models for boys who are growing up in the communities where we serve they i was taught to take my sats and to get a good job and uh, they were taught that going to prison is a rite of passage it's actually looked at as a cool thing to do a lot of times or the only path where you earn your stripes and then when they actually get there they realize that it's not what it's made out to be but then they think that there's no other path because people are not like you and Brad. Right. And and so there are not many rehabilitation opportunities. Like almost no one sees that these guys are, many of them are the diamond in the rough, that they hold so much opportunity and possibility.
0: You know, uh, another point that I often make is the universal desires for love, safety, and belonging. Yeah, and um, the one of the many many expressions of the complications of being human is that um, we can pervert the wishes for love, safety, and belonging into replication of that which we see, Um, and so the seven year old girl who watches her father, um, you know, commit an act of crime, in order to feel that fair human need for love, safety, and belonging from the primary focus, Those, those parental figures may, in fact, replicate the experience in one form or another. And it's the perversion of the wish to belong that may be, in fact, for me, the most heartbreaking. Because, you know, maybe what, maybe at some level, what you both are trying to do with Defy is to create an alternate universe in which people get a sense of love, safety, and belonging. And so when they walk the line, they walk away feeling loved, feeling like they belong, and finally feeling like they're safe.
1: Well, so. In that line exercise, we walk through 45 minutes of really difficult statements, and people step to the line if the statement is true. And it's things like, I heard gunshots in my neighborhood growing up, or I was convicted of murder, or Mm -hmm. like things that are, are, um, I've done arrestable things even though I haven't been arrested. And people are revealing very difficult things about their past. And then at the end of the exercise, one of the questions that I ask is, Even though I have made myself vulnerable in this exercise and have exposed things that I would never normally talk about, here, today, right now, I feel safe, accepted, and loved. (sighs) And I don't think I've ever had a situation where, I mean, 100% of the people on both sides of the line, so the executives and Mm -hmm. the EITs, are at the line on that and they start to celebrate because we're in a maximum security prison you know with the guy with a gun shot the gun above the the correctional officer watching over us and people are feeling safe accepted and loved and that's what i live for right
0: right you know it's um to go back to miller repper for a moment no one is irredeemable no one is garbage there are acts that are incredibly painful that have hurt thousands and thousands of people and the human story doesn't end there yeah and i think what you're doing i mean we haven't even talked about the arc of entrepreneurship as a means for transformation um but i think what you're doing here um is is such a brave reframing of your own experience, Kat. Um and and putting yourself on the line by doing that. Because I, I can just imagine someone is listening to this podcast right now, and like you at twelve is saying, but you don't understand. And so let me speak to that person for a moment. We do. We know you suffered. I myself have had the shit kicked out of me. I've been robbed. I've had, you know, I grew up in in a, a rough neighborhood in Brooklyn. We were robbed on a regular basis. My father was beaten, had his leg broken in three places. I, I saw him carried into my home. But the answer to that violence in society is not more violence. Every single wisdom tradition I've ever been exposed to teaches that. Mm-hmm. And people will cite the Old Testament's an eye for an eye, but that's not the full story.
1: Right. And the reality with the people that we serve is 95% of them get out even after murder right. or whatever crime. So Today's inmate is tomorrow's neighbor. What kind of neighbor do you want coming home to you? Right. And punishment, punishment alone doesn't work. An right. adult timeout is healthy for right. people who need one, which right. most of my guys needed an adult timeout. Right. But then what? And so I, when I hear about the crimes that they committed, mm-hmm. and many of them are worse than the situation that Brad described, mm-hmm. I... I cry as I feel pain for their victims. They yes. feel the pain for their victims. Yeah. And so we never take away from the fact that they have done damaging things. Yeah. I have done damaging things in my life. They have done damaging things in their lives. And they made bad choices. Um, but when I understand the why that led them to those choices... I almost always understand what led them there. And I, my limits of grace have been tested many times. And I'll tell you, when I heard the very worst things that mm-hmm. I've seen. Um, so I went to Rwanda for, and I was there for about 10 days, and I was touring genocide memorials and seeing mm. literally bloodstained clothing of uh, babies and women who had had their heads hacked off by machetes. And on the last day of my trip in Rwanda, I was um, invited to a Rwandan prison. Mm. Um, and this was after spending nine days crying for on behalf of the victims of the genocide. And I was there 15 years after the genocide had occurred, roughly. And um, the way that people were sentenced, Mm -hmm. um, they were given, if they were caught for participating in the genocide, for basically taking machetes and hacking off heads, they were given a max of 15 years in prison, those who were caught. And so when I went into the prison, I met what I had already believed were the sickest monsters that had ever walked the face of the earth. Who could like, you know, if you can cut off heads of babies, I've never seen something worse than that. And so I went into that prison with the sickest feeling in my stomach. And I don't know what happened to me, but as I sat across from Mm -hmm. these perpetrators and heard their stories, I found myself feeling empathy even though I was so disgusted by the acts that they had committed. Many of them were teenagers when they were um, brainwashed into this militia, being taught that the people who they killed were the enemy and that they were not human beings. And in fact, if they didn't participate in this genocide that they would be killed as well. And so they were trained to look at other people as not being human beings. And it doesn't, it didn't ever make what they did okay with me, but I thought, what happens if these guys are not mm-hmm. rehabilitated? What mm-hmm. happens? I mean, they've been in prison for 15 years, probably with nightmares every night of, like, the acts that they committed. If they don't get mm-hmm. redemption in their lives, what's what could happen again? They're being released.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So...
0: Well, I want to thank you both for sharing. And Brad, I don't know if there's any last word you want to share before we uh, sort of wind down.
3: I'll just end with one more example that really sticks in my head that was profound Mm -hmm. for me. Um, uh, There was another, and I'm going to call him a kid because he couldn't have been more than 22 or 23. And one of the things he did up on stage uh, was he read a, a beautiful, a beautiful poem that he had written that day or maybe the day before, and it was a beautiful poem. I mean, not, I mean, articulate, uh, powerful. And as I was sitting there, I I had known his story because I had talked to him earlier, and um, he was he was in for being for a triple murder and he had had a conversation i believe he was the same uh same guy that had had a conversation with one of the friends that had come with me who was a woman and he had said to her as they were talking you know were you uncomfortable today uh you know coming here and she said yeah i was a little uncomfortable when i came here and he said well you you should be i I killed three people right and like you know the, the the conversation between the very attractive white, you know, 30 something year old and the, you know, tough, muscly 23 year old black kid. Um, And, and he did that because that was how he got at 17. He did that because that's how he earned his way into his gang. And there was a lot more to the story. Like I was supposed to kill one person and it turned into a bigger thing and, Killed three and got caught, right? But in this context, of this cultural context where, like the Rwanda story, that was the cultural norm he was in. And I remember him reading this poem and I started to cry because he read the poem. And if I hadn't known the story and I wasn't in this context and he was standing on a stage at Harvard with his classmates, it would have been... Like, I could map to that, that view so easily. And, again, this sort of linkage between, I think the word empathy is a magnificent one, in that context. Did he do something terrible? Of course. Should he be punished for the terrible thing that he did? Yes. Should he, is he unredeemable, irredeemable, whatever the right word is? No. And do we set things up with the current system and structure that we have in such a way as to make it very difficult to have it evolve in a positive way? Yes. Are there lessons separate from this context, the context of uh, prison and, and the environment that we can apply to other elements of our life? fuck yeah. Right? Like, you know, the injustice that isn't a murder, why do we react to it? The person who who screws up or offends us, why can't you forgive? The failure that you have, that one has in a certain context, why should that generate self-hate? Keep on going, right? So I said earlier, like, the thing that was so powerful about this one day was not one of these experiences on one dimension. It was so many experiences on 20-plus dimensions that I'm still processing, you know, two months later.
1: Can I?
0: Yeah, go ahead.
1: So, a lot of this... Has been about the sadness and the rage and all yeah,
0: that. Yeah. And well, it's my thing.
1: <laughs> I know, but I can't help. I don't want to be Pollyanna here, but like I do want to talk about the joy for one minute. Sure. 95% of the people that we serve at Defy uh, have been convicted of violent crime. And when they get out, uh, we work with them, and the joy that I see from seeing them succeed is yeah. amazing. Our recidivism rate is less than five percent, so wow. almost all of them make it. And but recidivism alone is just like the measure of failure. I am not into that. I like the I like to see success too. So we have incubated and financed 165 of their businesses. After they get out, they become our very best employers our guys have created 350 jobs for other grads and other people in their communities. So they become givers of life and opportunity to other stigmatized people. And it's so cool to watch them make it. And and this week I was in New York at our post-release Shark Tank competition, where we actually award serious financial prizes and help them to raise equity from investors because their businesses are real. And we have a guy who started a tailoring business. Mm. And in nine months now, he's already done $150,000 in Mm. revenue, and he's hired, I think, 10 or 11 people. Mm. And then we see their children as well. And I live for that day, and it happens a lot, when I meet the kid and the kid says, I'm going to be just like my daddy. I'm taking over the family business Mm. when I grow up. And so to see the odds change completely it's why we're called defy defy the odds and the stereotypes and the perceptions that's also what i live for
0: well thank you that that was a beautiful note to end on and i think this was an amazing conversation and i want to thank you both for it
2: i hope you enjoyed this episode please consider leaving us a rating on itunes your rating is the single most effective way for new listeners to find and enjoy the show. You can also get all Reboot podcast episodes by signing up at Reboot.io slash sign up. There's a link for that in our show notes. I am Dan Putt from Reboot, and you've been listening to the Reboot podcast. Thanks for joining. How long till my
1: soul gets it right? I call on the resting soul of Galilee.